I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 13th, 2018. Coming up, plastic debris is polluting our oceans all the way to the Arctic and killing the otherwise and otherwise harming seabirds, mammals, and possibly humans. How bad is it? And what can we do about it? We'll hear from Jenna Jambach, an environmental engineer at the University of Georgia. And let's design products that retain their value. So minimize material diversity, let's say. Make it easier to recycle, use non-toxic materials. So definitely green chemistry plays a role as also green engineering. And for a local take on plastics and what's being done to keep them out of the ocean, we're joined by Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, founder and director of the Inland Ocean Coalition. The city of Boulder alone uses about 170,000 plastic straws a day. We have a plastic straw problem. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. When you look up in the sky and wonder, are we alone? One factor you have to consider is how many planets are out there in the universe? Until a few decades ago, we could only guess. Then, starting in the 1990s, a few planets orbiting other stars were discovered. Then a few became many, and many became a flood. And since that first discovery, there are now more than 3,700 confirmed exoplanets and several thousand more not yet confirmed candidate planets. All those planets are orbiting stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Those measurements push the limits of the capability of our current telescopes, so it seems that detecting a planet in another galaxy would be impossible for the foreseeable future. However, a recent paper in the publication Astrophysical Journal Letters claims to have accomplished just that feat. Researchers at the University of Oklahoma were studying the X-ray light of distant quasars that was altered due to a well-known phenomenon called gravitational microlensing. This happens when the gravity of a foreground object bends the light coming from a more distant object, briefly bringing that light to focus and making that distant object appear brighter. In this case, the foreground object was something in a galaxy between the quasar and Earth. The researchers noticed some unusual behavior in the gravitationally lensed light, and the calculations used to match the observations indicate that the object was likely planet-sized, ranging from a mass, ranging somewhere between the mass of the Moon and the mass of Jupiter. If this analysis is correct, it shatters the record for the most distant planet ever discovered. Previously, the most distant planet was about a star around 28,000 light years away from Earth. This new planet is in a galaxy 3.8 billion light years away. These results support the idea that planet formation is common even in other galaxies. If so, Scientists estimate that there are more planets than stars in the universe. Global sea levels are not only rising, the rate of sea level rise itself is accelerating. That's according to scientists from CERES, that's the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences in Boulder. 
The series team analyzed 25 years of satellite data to reach their new conclusions. Previous models have assumed that global climate change will cause a steady rate of sea level rise, meaning that by year 2100, sea levels would rise 30 centimeters, basically one foot. The new series model of acceleration doubles the likely sea level rise to 60 centimeters, basically a two-foot rise in sea level by the year 2100. Since most of the world's people live on or near the coast, this increased sea level rise will increase the damage from hurricanes and flooding, and in low-lying areas, put more homes and cities permanently underwater. Series fellow Steve Niram led the team that calculated this new sea level rise scenario, which was published yesterday in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. As for what's driving the accelerated sea level rise, the researchers point to the accelerated glacier melting in Greenland and Antarctica. And what's causing glacier melt to accelerate? Well, global climate change, they note. Artificial, artificial self-healing skin is moving from the realm of science fiction to the realm of science, as reflected in new research conducted at the University of Colorado Boulder. The notion of self-healing artificial skin may cause some listeners to recall scenes from the Terminator movie, but self-healing, malleable, electronic skin is not only a reality, the e-skin developed at CU Boulder even has sensors embedded to measure pressure, temperature, humidity, and airflow. The skin is made from a polymer known as polyamine that is laced with silver nanoparticles that provide the strength, stability, and conductivity necessary to do the job of human skin. The chemical bonding of polyamine used for e-skin allows it to be self-healing and fully recyclable at room temperature. Lead researcher Yan Zhao an associate professor of mechanical engineering at CU said the following, given the millions of tons of electronic waste generated worldwide every year, the recyclability of our e-skin makes good economic and environmental sense. Furthermore, the e-skin can be easily stretched to conform to the curved shape of a human or perhaps robotic hand without introducing excessive stresses. A paper on the subject was published last week in the journal Science Advances. On the science calendar this week, today at 12.30 at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Littleton, there'll be a talk on NASA and the future of space exploration. It'll cover the future of manned and robotic space travel at this pivotal juncture in space research, economics, and politics. The event will run from 12.30 to 1.30. For more information, go to activeminds.com. The Tattered Cover Aspen Grove store is located at 7301 South Santa Fe Drive in Littleton. And this Friday, February 16th, Boulder Bookstore will feature a talk by author Michael Brownlee on his new book, The Local Food Revolution. The talk will start at 7 o'clock Friday evening. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Try to wrap your brain around this astounding statistic. By the year 2050, if we continue business as usual, the sum total of plastic in the ocean will weigh more than all the fish in the ocean. 
That's a prediction by the World Economic Forum, a pretty conservative group. Plastic debris, ranging from plastic water bottles and caps to fishnets to tiny fragments, is choking seabirds and mammals and possibly harming human health, all the way up to the Arctic. And that's where I was recently, attending the Arctic Frontiers Conference in Norway's Arctic city, Tromsø. And that's where I met Jenna Jambeck. She's an environmental engineer at the University of Georgia. Dr. Jambeck directs the Center for Circular Materials Management in the university's New Materials Institute. And it's where researchers are designing products and processes that produce much less waste and turn so-called waste into new products. Dr. Jambeck spoke at the conference about her and others' research on plastic waste in the ocean and its impact on wildlife and humans. I interviewed her during the conference. In this edited version, I began by asking what brought her from Athens, Georgia, to Tromsø, Norway. You know, I'm here to talk about plastic ending up in the ocean, and um, we really have just one global ocean. Certainly, the the Arctic has its own, you know, sort of special place within that ocean and has uh, interesting circumstances. But we know that uh, plastic in the ocean, there's currents that can bring plastic from other places, just even the North Atlantic, up into the Arctic. And these are just the gyres that we've seen and talked about, but just the general current that's transporting Mm -hmm. all of this Mm -hmm. farther north, or not necessarily north, but... Right, and yeah, sort of into into the Arctic where um, it kind of dead ends up here, at least the oceanographers that, that have been talking about this. And then... Uh, there's people who have hypothesized that then maybe this would be a sink because we know that um, if the plastic itself becomes colonized by bacteria, the density can change and, you know, if it's sort of settling to the bottom, um, you know, this this might be one of the sinks. And by a sink for plastic, though, you mean that it is literally sinking and staying there. Yeah, it's both the the sort of the research based word by sink, meaning um, it's just called what we call where things sort of end up. So, but then at the same time, we are the literal term of, we think it's probably could be, you know, sinking to the bottom of the ocean there. So other sinks, for example, um, other work that's been in the Arctic is there's there's seabirds. So like the foamers and other seabirds, those um, also could potentially be another sink or another place at least where plastic is going. Wow, so first, what are some of the signs in the Arctic, but also beyond the Arctic, that were seen from the effects of plastics and maybe particularly microplastics in Mm -hmm. the ocean? Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess primarily what we see is ingestion uh, by wildlife. And so... I've seen some of the images of albatross. Was it the Scripps Institute? Well, there, there's uh, albatross, a lot of photographs taken by Chris Jordan, a photographer that, um, uh, especially Midway Island, where uh, there's nesting of the albatross, they, and you see plastic, you know, so basically plastic fills their belly, and they don't get any nutrition from that, because it can't be digested, and then they feel full, and they can starve to death, or there can be lacerations, or, mm. or other things that happen to their internal organs. So it's direct mortality. To, to yeah, consume the plastic. But even down, like you said, the microplastic to the tiniest animals in our food web. So the zooplankton are able to consume um, tiny microbeads that are in cosmetic products, the microfibers that are coming off of especially our fleece garments. Um, our yoga clothes. Finding, yeah, that's what people <laughs> have said, right? So the synthetic 
clothing um, that's made of this polyethylene or polyester um, tends to shed these microfibers and then they can be consumed by the tiniest animals. So the key sources you're saying are uh, facial products, like cosmetics and polyester clothes. For, right? for direct input of microplastic, yep. And so luckily there's been, you know, some bans throughout the world on um, the microbeads in cosmetic products in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K. Um, and so that's, that's a really positive policy action that's taken place. And as far as you can tell, is it helping to eliminate or kind of too soon to tell? Because this is really over the last couple of years, right? Right, right, right. yeah. But so, at least a step in the right direction correct. by governments. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And if that's one of the main sources along the lines of effects, aside from direct ingestion, is it also, well, you said the phytoplankton. So then as that mm -hmm. works its way up the food chain and it's right. eaten by the larger and the larger and the larger all mm -hmm. the way up to potentially whales. Right, right, right. yeah. So, um, so certainly, and especially we know, I mean, there's a couple more things about that makes plastic sort of, different as a material in our environment. So it doesn't biodegrade, so it only fragments. So another source of microplastic is actually the larger items of plastic that are ending up from mismanaged waste, which we know is a huge source of input. So into anything the ocean. from the plastic bottles you see Correct. to the, styrofoam the bottle caps, to yep. Fishnets. Yep, fishnets, buoys, um, and that and, and we know that fishing gear, especially in the Arctic, um, is an issue because there's so much fishing activity up here and actually the the population density is quite low so in comparison sort of to what we see for example in southeast asia where population densities are very high along the coastline you have a lot more person generated waste there um, but certainly all of these bigger items then over time instead of biodegrading just fragment into smaller and smaller pieces so we have all of these pieces of microplastic plastic also can sorb uh, persistent organic pollutants which is another issue within the arctic and we um, talk about those what's so, yeah, so bad about them or what defines them well they um they're things like pesticides and flame retardants and um, they can be uh, endocrine disruptors, cause cancer, things like that. And so the plastics actually like absorb them um, and then can sort of be this, this transporter of them. The plastics can also transport invasive species, which uh, people are very worried about here in the Arctic as oh, well. So they so just like hitch I a said, ride on these chunks, they, right? Exactly. They hitch a ride. Um, and, um, and so that's an issue. And then there's also additives in the plastic itself when it's manufactured. Like um, the plasticizers, the mm -hmm. phthalates? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Plasticizers and phthalates. So, so plastic, it, it just sort of has sort of this multitude of, of issues sort of surrounding it as this material that's ending up in our environment. And then you're exactly right. It can be eaten um, at the low end of the food chain and then potentially eat contaminants or the plastic itself associated can, you know, bioaccumulate. So it's bad enough for the tiny creatures and the animals that eat them. What's known about the effects on human health? Mm -hmm. And there, I know there have been some studies about Arctic sort of coastal communities mm -hmm. that are very mammal, walrus and seal and other dependent. Right. And so maybe starting with those, is there, mm -hmm. is there much in the way of known effects? There's not. Uh, so I think right now, 
people are finding microplastic in the food that we consume. Um, so people don't often necessarily eat the, the actual stomach and guts of the fish, although maybe in the Arctic they do. Um, but, but things like shellfish and, and filter feeder kind of animals. Um, and then even in like table salt, uh, sea salt, they found microplastic. So we know really? that it's ending up in our food chain, but we don't know, um, we don't yet know the impact to humans from is that just because well. there's very little research done so far or they don't think there really is i mean it's solution to pollution is dilution do they say so could be that the <laughs> right. dose or the concentration right. is so low that it may not have yeah. an effect or does it all just depend on how much you might ingest uh you know i think i i probably all of those you know i think that we don't know a lot we haven't been able to do a lot and certainly obviously it would depend upon dose and i think also the thing about plastic is that it's in materials around us all the time in our in our normal environment um, and we do know that microfibers end up in the air as well so hmm. in terms of our potential exposure to plastic maybe you know, maybe actually consuming something from the sea where it like went from the land to the sea and then the animal and then us eating it is even an indirect way when we might be, you know, breathing more fibers. And what's your piece of this where you're jumping in and trying to, as an environmental engineer, mm -hmm. you know, work on those solutions? How do you make stuff that fixes this? Right. <laughs> or get stuff that's made differently yeah. using green chemistry? Or... Exactly. Right. So we... Uh, so, yeah, thinking really, really far upstream um, in terms of even sort of just reducing plastic from the get-go, we're looking at alternative materials. And, of course, there's policies that come into play. So we talk a lot about, um, you know, reducing single-use plastic. And the biggest ones of those are just the single-use bottles that use plastic. Mm -hmm. right. and, and so bottles and bags and straws and, and other packaging, um, I think... We also need to be mindful, though, that, the, that there's people that don't have the luxury of making those choices if they don't have access to clean water um, or things like that. So it's those of us that do have the luxury of being able to use those reusable items that I think is, is really important for mm -hmm. us. And every little bit makes a difference, mind you. So people who think that just the one time they don't, they do, because taken collectively, those all really add up. Um, and so looking for alternative materials, like at our new Materials Institute, um, certainly there are polymers now um, at the pilot scale that can actually biodegrade. So these unintended consequences could be avoided. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can just be, you know, go out into the environment. They still need to be managed. And then for me, at the waste management side or the materials management side, we're really looking at making sure we capture all of these materials and let's design products that retain their value. So minimize material diversity, let's say, make it easier to recycle, use non-toxic materials. So definitely green chemistry plays a role as also green engineering. Yeah. If there are two or three takeaways for listeners, I hate the word consumers, but we are consumers, and in this case, we are consuming plastic bottles and such. Yeah. What are, you know, two or three things that people can do right now, granted, in a place where we're privileged enough to have the choice? Right, Do yeah. I use this, or can I do something else? Yeah. And yes, I may pay a little more for it. Right, right. I think make those choices if you can reduce the single-use packaging. Um, and, and like you, you know, said, and you're, you're talking straws or packaging, yep. plastic bottles. Plastic bottles, mm -hmm. bags, uh, reusable bags. 
you know, and, and you're not going to be 100% perfect, but does that doesn't mean you, then you totally quit, right? So I think that people feel like, oh, I have to do all this at once. Pick one thing, just do it to the best of your ability. Um, and then, you know, pretty soon it becomes this habit and, and it will be much easier than it is. But at first, if you can't do it 100%, it's okay because really every little choice makes a difference. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So we just heard from Dr. Jenna Jambach about how plastic waste is polluting the oceans and killing wildlife, and how things like changing how products are made and changing our own lifestyle patterns, for that matter, can go a long way towards solving, or at least minimizing, the problem. So in case you're still scratching your head wondering, what's this all got to do with Landlock Colorado and my daily life? We'll stay put. Joining us in the studio now is someone who's been working doggedly for years to raise public awareness and affect policy concerning ocean health and our impact on it. That includes our use of plastic products. Vicki Nichols-Goldstein is the founder and director of the Inland Co- Ocean Coalition. Vicki, great to have you back in the studio. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So maybe start by giving a sense of what is the connection? You know, how our watersheds connect and why we are clearly a part of the problem and the solution here. I think it's really fun to think about Colorado um, as being the beginning of the ocean because as it snows and it rains, it follows down through creeks and rivers. And if you follow the water on the east side of the Continental Divide, all of our rivers end up in the Gulf, or excuse me, in the um, Mississippi River, which drains right into the Gulf of Mexico. Same with the western side of the divide, follows down the Colorado River, and in a good year, where we don't have a lot of diversions, it will end up in the Sea of Cortez. So it's a very easy connection. Yeah, and it seems there's so many ways, as Dr. Jembeck was describing, that not only uh, are there sources of the problem, but also ways to reduce it. And it seems you guys at the Inland Ocean Coalition and the Colorado chapter, the Colorado Ocean Coalition, um, have been doing quite a bit to try to reduce the waste stream and change habits. Can you talk about one of the key things related to straw and why Certainly. Plastic pollution is a huge deal, and it's overwhelming. And I think yeah. many of us have gone into the idea of carrying a water bottle and bags, but we don't realize that plastic straws are an enormous problem. We use, just in the city of Boulder, about 170,000 plastic straws a day. 170,000. <clears> yeah. <laughs> and our yes. population is what? 90,000? Oh, it's more than that. But if you think about just that 170,000 plastic straws, if you put them in a box four feet high uh, by six feet wide, and within a course of a year, if you pile them up, it would reach the top of our flat irons, which are about 1,440 feet. Well, I'll never look at the flat irons again. (laughs) (laughs) So it just helps to illustrate it's a problem. So what we have done, it's a collaborative effort, We've developed a program called Suck the Straws Out. And it's really based on individuals recognizing that they can make a difference by going into restaurants and saying, no straw, please, or hold the straw, and then working with local establishments to encourage them to only provide paper straws 
upon request. And it's really taking off. So give a couple examples of how it's taken off, meaning that some managers, some of the chefs, some of the owners are saying, all right, we won't use them at all. Yes. We will, but only upon Yeah, request. we have some restaurants in town, Jack's and I believe uh, Wild Standard and uh, Shine, and many others are showing interest. And so the campaign is really picking up. And it's actually so exciting. Not only are the Boulder establishments wanting to get involved, we now have Fort Collins, Salida, Denver, Littleton, and Connecticut, um, other areas where we have chapters around the country, they're wanting to do the same thing. So it's a really great community-based way to say, hey, we're going to do our part to reduce plastics. And it's something very simple, working on plastic straws. And I think you described before, it's kind of a gateway. Even though relative to plastic bottles, this is probably fairly minuscule. I mean, it's a huge It's a huge, source, but it but really still. helps people to connect. Like, oh, I don't want to take a plastic straw and... Obviously, I don't want to take a plastic bottle. So it really helps to change that whole sense of engagement around plastic. And it really helps people and establishments to say, no, we're going to do our part and reduce our plastic use and save oceans from a mile high. And I know this is a huge issue, but it does speak to straws. Because some restaurants have converted to corn-based, you know, the polylactic acid. And they're like, oh, that's fine. It's compostable. But without the facility to actually com compost that's more methane in the landfill because it's corn emitting those emissions. Right. So what, what's your take on that? Should there actually not be Our those take, bio plastic? Yeah, we are hoping that this initiative will raise awareness about compostable straws. It was a good step, but it really isn't the solution. If they don't end up in that correct facility, they're, they're just trash. So we're saying no straws, and if you really want to use a straw, go for paper because that is compostable and it will disintegrate and not harm the environment. Oh, so f where can people go to get more info on this campaign and then if they want to get involved in the Inland Ocean Coalition for that matter? If you go to the Inland Ocean Coalition website and under action, you'll see a tab, suck the straws out and join us. And we're having some really wonderful activities coming up in the next couple of months that really raise awareness. So we have lots of information on our website and on the Colorado Ocean Coalition Facebook page. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. That was Vicki Goldstein, founder and director of the Inland Ocean Coalition. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is I, Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Additional headline contributions from Shelley Schlender and Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from theme track from George Martin and Open the Door for Three. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Chip Granditz. It is 9 o'clock and you are listening to KGNU 88.5 FM, 1390 AM Boulder, Denver, 98.7 FM in Fort Collins.